the word of the Lord from the prophet Jeremiah. Go and shout this message to Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me and followed me through the barren wilderness. In those days, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his children. But what did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them to stray so far from me? They worshipped worthless idols, only to become worthless themselves. Has anyone ever heard of anything as strange as this? Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they are not gods at all? Yet this, my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord, for my people have done two great evil things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Long ago, I broke the yoke that oppressed you and tore away the chains of your slavery, but still you said, I will not serve you. On every hill and under every green tree, you have prostituted yourselves by bowing down to idols. But I was the one that planted you, choosing a vine of purest stock, the very best. How did you grow into this corrupt wild vine? No amount of soap can make you clean. I still see the stain of your guilt. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. But you say that's not true. I haven't worshipped any images of Baal. But how can you say that? Go down and look at the valley and your land and face the awful sins you've done. Israel is like a thief who feels shame only when he gets caught. Because to an image carved from a piece of wood, they say, this is my father. And to an idol that is chiseled in a block of stone, they say, this is my mother. And they turn their backs on me. But in times of trouble, they'll cry out to me, come and save us. But why not call on those gods that you have made? When trouble comes... Why not do you let them save you? If you have so many gods, as you have towns in Judah, why do you accuse me of doing wrong? You are the ones who've rebelled, says the Lord. Oh, my people, listen to the words of the Lord. Does a young woman forget her jewelry or the, a bride her wedding dress? Yet for years on end, my people have forgotten me. Oh, Israel, my faithless people, come home to me again, for I am merciful. And I will not be angry with you forever. Only acknowledge your guilt and admit that you've rebelled against the Lord your God and committed adultery against him by worshiping idols under every green tree. Confess that you've refused to listen to my voice. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Two weeks ago, we arrived at a place called Sinai. And it's here that God wants to take his relationship with Israel to the next level by giving them what's called the Torah, or the law. And if you remember, I suggested that viewing the Lord giving Moses the law is more akin to the exchange of wedding vows. And we talked about how God and the people were entering into this mutual agreement, this covenant, like couples do at the altar during a wedding. And Yahweh, the bridegroom, wants to be in relationship with his bride, Israel. And he states the parameters and the core essentials to their relationship. And God told Israel the kind of people that he was going to be for them. And he told them that he, this is the kind of people he wanted them to be for him. And the two, in essence, at Sinai, exchanged vows with each other. 
And we talked about some of these vows. Vows like, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any gods but me. Let me translate that just for you for a second. I am your husband who demonstrated his supreme power over all those potential other suitors and lovers in Egypt. I freed you and brought you to myself. Never forget all that I've done for you and just put me first. Have no other lovers but me, for I've taken you to be my bride. Make me the prime affection of your, of your affection. Make me your beloved as you are mine. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate any affection for any other gods. Translation, since I'm your beloved, don't dwell on your former lovers. In fact, don't fraternize and flirt with any of them or make statues of them or many paintings of them on walls. Don't listen to them. Don't interact with them. Don't even be friends with them anymore. Don't even talk about them Divorce them and be with me, because I'm all you need. You get the idea. This goes on eight more times. By entering into this marriage covenant with God, Israel was setting herself apart from all the other people groups, making herself a holy nation, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. This is why Sinai is so significant, because I think it's a wedding, and it's the exchanging of vows, and it's the holy matrimony between Yahweh and his people. But for the next two, or only about 1,000 years or so, Israel will struggle at keeping her vows that she made, specifically those first two. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you know this to be true. From the time that she made these vows at the altar at Sinai to when her heartbroken husband has to exile her from her homeland into captivity in Babylon when Jeremiah is preaching over and over again like a broken record, Israel will have difficulty keeping these vows. Prophets like Hosea and Jeremiah, who I read earlier, Ezekiel and Isaiah will frequently call Israel out on this and equate this sin to infidelity. And the warning signs for this can be seen before Israel ever left the altar. Forty days and nights go by, a little over a month, and there's been no trace of Moses. And he's in an Exodus 24, after Israel agrees to the terms of the covenant, Moses is again summoned by God to go back up into the mountain on Mount Sinai. And he's told he's going to receive some stone tablets or some divinely inscribed copies of the vows that Israel just made, one for them and one for God. It was standard practice back then that each people that participated in a covenant receive a copy of the covenant. God didn't need two tablets because he's got big handwriting. And now, eight chapters later, in Exodus 32, folks on the ground are growing a tad restless. Moses is nowhere to be seen, and this is the longest stretch they've been without him. The guy that's been the buffer zone, or the middleman between them and God. Moses was the only means of contact that Israel had with God, and so now that Moses is MIA, it felt like Yahweh was MIA, and the people start wondering what they're going to do. And so losing their cool and fearing the worst, the people go to the only leader they've got left, Moses' brother Aaron. And they say, look, it's obvious your brother is not coming back. So why don't you make us some gods that will lead us instead? And seemingly with no hesitation, 
with no reservations, Aaron agrees to do so. This future high priest, the future senior pastor of the community, condones Israel turning her back on her beloved. And he gets quickly to work. He gets all the gold that the Israelites have. This gold they actually have is because they acquired it as spoils of war from the Egyptians. Do you know this? That after the plagues, that after Israel is exiting Egypt, we're told the Egyptians start lavishing them with gifts of gold and silver and priceless commodities. That's trying to incentivize them to exit just a little bit faster because the Egyptians didn't want to risk another plague. And so in reality, as they're leaving, this is one final humiliation against Pharaoh that his kingdom is being ransacked and pillaged by his own people as Israel is on their way out. But now months later, that same loot, signs of Yahweh's defeat of the gods of Egypt, is now going to be melted down and cast into the mold of a new God. Y'all know it as the infamous golden calf. Now, there's a lot we don't know about the golden calf. Most, if not all, of the images we have in our minds come from children's Bibles. But the term in Hebrew that's rendered calf is actually more akin to a fully grown bull, yet that's still young. Ancient world considered that the apex of domesticated animals. Archaeologists have actually excavated tons of icons and young bulls that were used as idols all over the ancient Near East, including even in Egypt where the Egyptians worshipped what was called the Apis bull. I have some photographs for you to see. But nowhere in the Old Testament are we ever given any clarity about it. And perhaps that's deliberate. It doesn't matter what it looked like. It doesn't matter how big it was. It doesn't matter really got the idea. It only matters that it exists at all. And all we know is that what Aaron ends up making isn't all that original. It's a product of his time, and so was its purpose. I'm about to give you a little crash course on ancient pagan idolatry. And I don't want you to get this out of context and go tell people that pastor was talking about idols in church on Sunday, okay? So don't take me out of context. Let's talk about what it meant. Idols were never thought of as gods themselves, at least not in the way we tend to think. We often assume that the ancients believed this paperweight was a god in and of itself, but that usually wasn't the case. Idols served a different purpose. They acted as a sort of earthly representation of a particular god, whether it be Zeus or Marduk or Ra, whatever the idol was, whether it was a statue or a painting or an animal or even a human being, the idol was a placeholder for that particular God. It was an icon or a symbol of their divine presence. So it was a visual, tangible guarantee that whatever God or whatever deity you're looking for was with you right there. And so the ancients believed that somehow an extension or a part of the essence of the God or goddess dwelled in the idol. It was an aspect of them somehow existed in the idol. So an idol functioned as this conduit between the worshiper and the deity. So anything you did in the presence of the idol was thought to be done in the actual presence of the god or goddess themselves. Are you tracking with me? This is what idols did. And this is why idols were so desirable. Because you knew when and where your god was. And you could take it with you. It's what made them so attractive, and it's what still makes them attractive today, because you can see an idol, you can touch an idol, you can kiss an idol, 
You can enjoy the appearance of an idol at home or on your desk at work. You can even manufacture replicas of idols and sell them to other people and make some money so it's pleasing to your wallet as well. This is the opposite of walking by faith and not by sight. It's the reverse. Because you can always see the idol, which indicates that a part of the God must, in theory, be present with you. Again, in theory, guaranteeing that God will see your actions or your penance or your worship. In theory. And with this in mind, it makes sense why Israel felt the need to make a golden calf. Because Moses was taking too long to get back. And as far as the people are concerned, Moses is gone. And so they're left in the middle of the barren wilderness, alone and afraid, and with no one to lead them the rest of the way to the promised land, they take it upon themselves to fashion gods who will. Gods who conveniently pick up the slack for where Yahweh is lacking. Gods who will be a visible presence in their community, unlike Yahweh was, despite the fact that if they waited for Moses to get back, they would have heard that God was planning to move into their community in what was known as a tent of meeting called a tabernacle. But the people are impatient, and they're out of fear and insecurity. They do what all the cool empires are doing, and they make themselves some gods. They revert back to the theology of the brickyards. We've seen this over and over again, that when the going gets tough, the Israels revert back to being Egyptians, back to the slave mentality that God rescued them out of Egypt from. And here is no exception. Instead of wrestling with God, they forfeit God. Old habits die hard, I guess. So what we have here isn't just a blatant act of godlessness. It's an act of panic on the part of a people who fear they've lost contact with their God. And this is where the story of the golden calf rubs shoulders with a lot of us this morning. When the emotions are high, when we're left high and dry, when we're left without instruction and not told what to do, when we're out of control, without knowledge of what comes next, when we're terrified of tomorrow, we might find ourselves melting down our gold and creating a calf too. Have you ever done this? I know I've been tempted to use the crucible of my pain or my grief or my despair, not as a refining, sanctifying opportunity as I wrestle with God through that. Rather, I'm seduced into using it to melt my energies and my resources and my time even my theology and my convictions to make myself a golden calf to lean on instead of Yahweh. A God who conveniently is made in my image, or at least the image of I want God to be rather than who he is. Have you ever been there? After the people see Aaron's bull statue, whatever it was, They exclaim, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And notice how quickly a system of worship is created and implemented around the newly made metallic bull. 
Almost instantaneously, Aaron makes an altar in front of it for sacrifices. The people will get up the next morning so eager to offer burnt offerings to it, peace offerings to it. In fact, the people are so excited and so ecstatic that they're going to throw a party. And they're going to do this elaborate worship service with music and dancing and drinking and merriment all because of this bowl. Because we discover that with idolatry, it's never just the trinket. It's never just the golden calf, because there's more to it than that. It's everything else that's around the golden calf, because idolatry, friends, is a system. It's a complex web of interconnecting superstitions and beliefs that's all associated with the idol. And this is what usually prevents us from believing that we can have idols nowadays, because I doubt any of you go home and have a golden calf sitting in your living room. But the absence of a golden calf figurine doesn't mean idols don't exist in our lives. Because idolatry is a mindset. It's a way of life. It's always been more than the vaporweight. Because just like with Yahweh, ah, your idols are going to want to make promises to you. And they're going to demand their own vows from you. Do you remember the vows that we talked about? Idols have their own. And when you worship idols, you are making a covenant with them just like you would have with Yahweh. Like Yahweh, idols will make some sorts of promises. And it's usually things we really want. Power. Success. Security love, wealth. This is why there's a plethora of gods in the ancient world, whether it's the goddess of love or the god of fertility, because you will always find gods that will do these things for you, and you often have more than one idol. And eventually, each idol will offer you a covenant and make, want to make an agreement with you, just like Yahweh would. Idol worship is a system built on this notion that the gods could do anything except take care of themselves. (laughs) Gods and goddesses needed pampering, and they needed mortals to do it. So the way that they would get it is idols would propose a vow. If you feed me, whether it was actual food, whether it was grain or meat or something else, it varied from system to system, the god would then in turn use his power or her power on your behalf if you fed them. A quick pro quo. It was a scratch-my-back, I'll-scratch-your-back mentality, though they never had to. And this is the part that people misunderstand. Gods were obligated to help you, but they were never forced to because it was still ultimately up to them. And the gods were notoriously lazy, and they were stubborn. Just look at the prophets of Baal trying to get Baal to do something on Mount Carmel with Elijah. In their defense, it was all in the fine print of the terms and conditions of their covenant agreement with you, and this is why you should always have lawyers look at it. These vows tended to usually have humble beginnings. A measly grain offering here. Some cooked meat here. Pray a couple quick prayers. You'd probably be willing to do those things if it meant receiving rain or winning a war. It was never as intrusive as demanding, let's say, love your neighbor as yourself. Never a complete lifestyle makeover. Idols never demanded holiness like Yahweh did. They were never exclusive or demanded complete loyalty like Yahweh did with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Idols didn't care for the competition. And again, this was a major selling point for idols. And here's the thing. The covenants made with idols, they changed. (laughs) Yahweh's covenant never changes. 
idols do. The gods were notorious at changing the terms of their deal, and the vows would tend to escalate. To show me your loyalty now, I need you to do something more extreme, whether it's harming yourself, violence towards others, casually sleeping with temple prostitutes, or something even more barbaric as human or child sacrifices. And this is when we get the the ugly truth about idols. They're liars. (laughs) They're con men. They're really good but really scummy salesmen. Have you ever worked with one of these kinds of guys before? They promise the world, but they always come up short. They know how to hook you, and they know how to keep you coming back for more, and they have a knack for always coming in and being able to close. They know how to pull on your heartstrings, to play on your emotions, to swindle you into a deal that you can't back out of. They're like the sirens in Homer's Odyssey, these temptresses that are singing these irresistible songs, luring and hypnotizing sailors to their doom. They're charlatans. Because they talk a big game, but they can never produce. And today we'll say, well, of course they'll never be able to produce because they're not real. But don't be fooled, friends. Idols are such good liars that they can make anyone believe they're real. They're that good. You can call it demonic forces. You can call it being our human-deprived nature. You can call it sin. Call it whatever you want. They're just that good. And this is how they work because they convince you that you need them, that you need to make a deal with them, that you need a covenant with them, that you need to take their vows and do some terrible things after a while. And what happens is it will change you and it will corrupt you and make you a slave to them. Because the end goal of idolatry is always the same, making you become completely dependent on them, meaning you'll do anything that they say. In fact, you'll defend them if someone pushes against them. An attack on an idol is a personal attack against you. And that's often a telltale sign that something in your life is an idol because if someone threatens it or opposes it, including Yahweh himself, that might be an idol. They're that powerful. You feel guilty if you sin against them. That's another telltale sign. Who wears the pants in your relationship, them or you? We'll tend to gravitate towards people who share our idols and worship with them. And we form tribes or cliques around them. It's a system. It's more than just the trinkets. It's always more than the metallic statue. It's never just some tangible physical object. Often there isn't anyone. It's a complicated system that people become trapped and entangled in, shackled in like an addiction, like any other form of slavery. And this morning, we see that people who are saved can become enslaved idols. I heard John Wesley used to say, whatever is loved, feared, delighted in, or dependent on more than God, that we make a God of. Presbyterian pastor and theologian Tim Keller, who regrettably passed away actually just a couple days ago. I like how he defines idols in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what God can only give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential in your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol is such a controlling position in your heart that we can spend most of our passion and energy and emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. 
An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, and then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Friends, the hard truth this morning is that anything can be an idol. Anything can be a God alternative, a counterfeit God, because everything has been an idol. The human heart takes things and turns them into ultimate things, things that become the be-all, end-all of our existence. We try to fit the God-sized hole in our heart with something that isn't God or something that is claiming to be God, and our hearts will deify them as the center of our lives because we think that if we can just get them, we'll be happy or that we'll have security, or that we'll feel fulfillment, or that we'll have some sort of worth. We run to our idols to attain these things instead of relying or waiting or wrestling with God for them. And more often than not, these things are not necessarily bad things. Another common misconception about idols is that we think idols are bad things, but in the most cases, they never are. It's just like with sin, that behind every idol is usually a good, and the source behind an idol is something usually good, a good that if pushed to an extreme, if it becomes the highest priority in our lives, it becomes an idol. Maybe for you this morning, maybe it's your family, your children, your grandchildren. Maybe it's a hobby or a pastime, things that you do to relax that escape the woes of this world. You would do them instead of being with God. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your small business. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your striving. You have goals. You have personal achievements that you want to get. That takes the top billing in your life. Maybe it's a romantic relationship, a significant someone. If you were just with that person, you would be happy. Maybe it's your appearance. I need to look beautiful. I need to feel beautiful. I need that figure that I see on the magazines. Then I will be lovable. Maybe it's a cause. Maybe it's a social movement in this world. These are what we call intellectual idols because they're called ideologies. You can hear it in the word. Maybe it's a political cause. Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's our country itself, patriotism and the love of country. Be careful because you might lose the soul of the nation if it becomes an idol. The greater the good, the more likely we can expect it that it can become an idol if not kept in check. To say it another way, idol worship is a mismanagement of our loves. Instead of God being the first thing out of our loves and followed by everything else, we put something else first and God maybe is on the list somewhere else. The majority of the story in the Old Testament is God's people's frequent infatuation and bad marriages with lovers. Be it the gods of Baal or Asherah or even other nations. But friends, there's another story that's running congruent with that one in the background to God's people flirting and engaging with these idols. It's this other story of Israel's true beloved, her husband, that's working to be reunited with Israel again. Can I read from Jeremiah again? If you keep reading Jeremiah's prophecy, he says this. He says, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And this covenant will not be like the one that I made with their ancestors when I took them out of the land of Egypt. 
They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instruction deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor they will need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Friends, that day has come. In the fullness of time, the Apostle Paul tells the Galatians, God sent his son who gave himself up for our sins to set us free from the present evil age. And then the shedding of his blood, the inauguration of a new covenant between God and his people has come. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. Paul will say, so that you can be adopted as his very own children. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you're his child, God has made you an heir. A promise, an heir to a promise through faith in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, Paul will say it this way. Christ loved the church, giving up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washing by the cleansing of God's word. And he did this to present her to himself like a bride without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. There's that wedding language again. Friends, we're now the bride. And our beloved, our bridegroom, hasn't given up on us. And he's not forsaken us despite our infatuation and affairs with other lovers. He's done all that's necessary to reunite himself with us again. God has taken the initiative to save us, to set us free from the guilt and power and the nature of sin through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. He's already come. He's atoned for our sinfulness. He's broken the spell that idols have over us, and he wants to set us free from the control of idols this morning. Friends, the new gardener of a new creation is on the move. Our beloved is doing exactly what Jeremiah said he'd do. He's putting those vows of the covenant deep within us, and he's writing them on their hearts. We don't need those tablets of stone anymore, because God has given us the Holy Spirit. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can keep those vows and be with our God again. Free. Not simply saved, but free. Restored into the image and likeness of our beloved, and fully a human again. Do you believe that, church? I think idols want to forget, want us to forget that we're the bride of Christ. That Christ has saved us, but he's sanctifying us. I think idols want us to forget that. And so as we close, I want to invite you to take a few minutes in this sacred space. We don't do this very often, and maybe that's my own fault. I want you to examine the landscape and valleys of your life for maybe high places, altars, for golden calves that may exist in your life. I want to invite you to just go before your beloved in the spirit of confession and repentance this morning. Maybe as we've meditated on this story, one of those golden calves has reared its ugly head. Do you need God's help to reduce it to ash this morning? Pray for that extra grace today. Maybe there's some vows that you've made to some idols that you need to stop making this morning. You can ask the Holy Spirit for power to do so. Break the vows that you're making with your idols and fulfill the vows that you're supposed to be making with your original beloved. He'll give you the strength to do that.
Maybe this morning you need to renew your vows with your beloved today. The bridegroom is waiting at the altar for you. Maybe you're in a season right now where the turbulence of whatever you're going through, whether it's fear or it's loneliness or it's grief or it's anger, disappointment, maybe it's pushing you right now to melt that gold and make a God that will numb that pain. Voice that aloud to your beloved today. You can do that. I want to close with a story. I'm going to try to be really quick with this. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis shares this parable of a busload of people who in the afterlife travel to heaven. And he observes that the people there appear as thin and almost ghost-like in this robust atmosphere on the foothills of the kingdom of God. And most of them immediately will flee back to the bus instead of go to heaven. But one ghost lingers. He doesn't get back on the bus. Instead, Lewis notices that he loiters indecisively because there's something on his shoulder. It's a little red lizard, and it's twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things into its ear. And the ghost appears to be arguing with the lizard, demanding it to be quiet, but it blatantly ignores him, wagging its tail, continuing to pester him. But before the ghost can do anything, this little Right, with a little red lizard on its shoulder, it starts to limp back to the bust, but an angelic figure stops him, and it says, off so soon? Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, because you see my friend here, and he's indicating to the red lizard, I told him that he has to be quiet if we go to heaven, but he just won't, so I guess I'll just go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the angel. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him said the angel, taking a step forward. Wait, 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 wait. You're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. But don't you want me to kill him, asked the angel. You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly mean to bother you with something so drastic, said the ghost. It's the only way, said the angel, insisting that the only way to permanently silence the lizard is to kill it. But the ghost objects again. Please, I never meant... To be such a nuisance, please, really, I don't want to bother you. Look, it's going to go to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure that that's all that needs to be due. Thank you so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's really any need for that anymore. I'm sure that if, if I just get it in order, with the gradual process, it'll die on its own. The gradual process is of no use to you. It never is and never will be. May I kill it for you? Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me too if you did. Not so, said the angel. But you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. So why are you torturing me like this? Just Why didn't you just help me without me knowing? Without me knowing. Why didn't you just get it over with without me noticing? I can't kill it against your will. It's impossible. Have I your permission to kill it? By now, the lizard wakes up and starts talking to the man. Be careful, he says. He can do exactly as he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will, but then you'll be without me forever and ever. How can you live without me? It's not natural to live without me. You'd be a sort of ghost, not a real person. He wouldn't understand because he's an angel. You can't live without me. I promise that I'll be better. I promise that I won't annoy you as much. I admit that maybe I've gotten carried away in the past, but I won't annoy you as much. And then the lizard fell silent, and the angel asked the ghost one final time, have I your permission? The ghost then yelled, fine, get it over with, do it. And under his breath, he muttered, God help me. The ghost then let out 
a terrible scream that Lewis had never heard before as the angel closed its grip on the lizard, twisting it until he flung it to the ground, lifeless. Then the ghost, he said, fell backwards and began to be transformed, growing more solid and brighter by the second until a fully, truly human being emerged, similar to the angel. Lewis goes on to say that only this sky, free from the little red lizard, entered into the kingdom of heaven instead of returning on the bus to hell. What little red lizard do you need to kill this morning?